Assuming that Ben introduced uh, Aaron and Bennett last. So we have uh, a new section leader, uh, uh, Aaron, who's our soprano, and a new uh, bass section leader, Bennett. Um, and on behalf of the congregation, let me just say, welcome home. We're glad you're here. See, if you had a real minister, you would have figured that out before right now, but <laughs> unfortunately, you're all stuck with me. A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. And so he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to God. So then, in one spirit, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together with, uh, spiritually into a dwelling place for God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the word of the Lord. Back in 2015, when I was on sabbatical, Susan, Dominic, and I flew to Montreal for 10 days. That was beautiful. I'd never been before. I mean, the people were kind, and we had a wonderful time sort of wandering around the city. 
One of the things that struck me, uh, even though I knew it was going to happen, everybody spoke French. I mean, the signs were in French, and they had English translations, but I, I, I joked that even the kids in Montreal are super smart. I, all of them even speak French. Anyway, we were uh, walking to get ice cream one night, and Dominic, he was seven years old, so I mean, ice cream was a kind of a big deal. And on our way, we walked past a park, and there's a bunch of kids playing out there, and Dominic said, can we go play? And Susan said, well, not right now. We're going to get ice cream. And Dominic said, but I want to go play. More than get ice cream? Yes. But why? And he said, look at how many friends I could make. That's Dominic. That is not a sentence that has ever or would ever come out of my mouth or Susan's for that matter, as kind as she is. But it strikes me that I'm glad there are those kinds of people out there, people who are capable of such interpersonal bravado. But I am generally not among them. And I'm not certain why that is, but I, I think we like to be around those kinds of people, don't we? Then we seek them out. We, we try to let a little bit of their light shine on us. They're attractive just to be around. And I mean attractive in the sense that they pull people into their sphere of uh, their orbit. For whatever reason, these people often have a way of making us feel better about ourselves just by being in their presence. And for those for whom this is true, we invariably say something like, boy, that Dominic never met a stranger, right? All of which says a lot less about the number of people that Dominic really knows than about the quality of contact he has with the people uh, that he meets. Or, or, or perhaps it's enough to say that these kinds of people cross whatever boundaries are necessary to make us feel at home because they always seem themselves to feel at home. You want to know something weird? Okay. But this goes no further, all right? This is just between us. When I'm in a group of strangers, I'm afraid I'll have to say my own name out loud. Isn't that odd? I don't like to say my own name out loud. I mean, I like my na name well enough when I see it written or when somebody else says it. But if I have to say it, I don't know. I got a thing. Let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. I hate that. <laughs> because no matter what, I know that I'll mumble my name somehow and somebody will say, well, glad to meet you, Jerry, or Garrett, or Daryl, or any one of a hundred other appellations that bear faint similarity to my name. And of course, all of this makes me feel even more like a stranger to these people. In one church I served, 
in the mountains where I was a youth minister, there, an older lady in the congregation called me Dexter for two years. <laughs> of course, it was, she was, we were in northeast Tennessee, so it was Dexter. But as lonely as it is to feel like a stranger among other strangers, I mean, there are even more profound ways of feeling like a stranger, aren't there? I mean, it's possible, for example, to go home after punching the time clock at work, walk into the house, and sit around a supper table with a bunch of strangers. It's possible to get up, put on your Sunday best, sneak in the back at 10.59, and sit around the Lord's table with a group of strangers, some of whom you've known your whole life. It's, I mean, it's sad, isn't it? As hard as it is to feel alone and alienated among people you don't know, it's exponentially more difficult to feel like a stranger to those for whom you have professed your own love and commitment. I mean, if you pick up a, a, a paper or click on a paper, turn on the evening news, you'll invariably run across a sordid domestic story where somebody did something horrible to somebody else, people who at one time lived together, loved each other, brought birthday cards for one another. I mean, they wind up on the news, hair all messed up, running around in t-shirts, usually a case of some cheap something or other involved. And the reporter will look into the camera and say, and Daryl Ray Blevins came to the house where his estranged ex-wife was living, but when no one answered the door, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he took a three iron and remodeled the deck, blah, blah, blah. But if you listen closely, you'll hear the one word that seems to pop up in every one of these stories. You know what it is? Estranged. Estranged. It's an interesting word. It, it comes from the medieval, uh, the, excuse me, the medieval Latin extraniare, which means to treat as a stranger. I mean, we do it all the time, right? Most of the time, we don't mean to do it. Most of the time, it's not something we're looking to do on purpose. It is, I mean, this happens. A few, a few missed meals, a few broken promises, a little miscommunication, a little misunderstanding, and all of a sudden, we wake up next to somebody we no longer know as a friend, but has become a stranger. And pretty soon they're doing a live at five on location in your front yard with the helicopters hovering. And as sad as it is when it happens with those whom we've loved, it also happens in our relationship with God. For whatever reason, we often live our lives as though God is hiding behind a great wall through which we cannot penetrate. Try as we might, the obstruction sort of blocks our contact with God. And so God, to many of us, often feels like a stranger. Interestingly enough, if, if our epistle for this morning is to be believed, our estrangement from one another is inextricably bound up with our estrangement from God. Now, Paul takes up the whole issue of estrangement in our text this morning. 
He deals, once again, with the problem of alienation in the church between Jews and the Gentiles. Obviously, there'd been tension. The historic aversion of Jews toward Gentiles hadn't given way, even in the face of their new common faith in Christ. And Paul's, he's not happy. Now, interestingly enough, Paul evokes images of the temple in his reply to this situation, noting that Christ has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Well, let's just do a little bit of background for a moment. If you recall, the temple in Jerusalem was this intricate progression of chambers whose boundaries were established by an equal progression of walls. Now, outside, there was what was known as the Court of the Gentiles, which allowed everybody in. Didn't matter. Anybody could enter the Court of the Gentiles. Beyond that, there was the Court of um, Women, now, between the courtyard of the Gentiles and the court of women, uh, it was called the Beautiful Gate, and over the Beautiful Gate was an inscription in Greek and Latin that prohibited Gentiles or foreigners from entry, from going through the gate, on pain of death. The word for foreigner is translated as Stranger, xenos, from which we get, of course, xenophobia. The fear of strangers, the fear that someone might sneak in, have babies, and take all our lucrative tomato picking jobs, which, of course, is why we have to build a wall, right? The Jews didn't want any contact with Gentiles. And so they built their own wall. There's a kind of security fence. That's, sound, okay, it sounds familiar. But they didn't stop with the Gentiles. That's what's so fascinating about this. They built a wall beyond which the women couldn't go. And then there was a wall beyond which the average male Jew could not go. And then there was a wall beyond which even the priests couldn't go, except the high priest, and then only once a year. The little room protected by that wall was called the Holy of Holies, and that was the room where God was said to reside, behind this huge progression of walls. I mean, everywhere, they're separating, dividing, keeping everybody at an appropriate distance from each other, and ultimately from God. The temple, for all of the good it wrought, was designed to keep people apart to keep them far off. But Paul says, after the death of Jesus, a new temple has been built. The design for the old temple has been abandoned, and the plans for the new temple involve tearing down the dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles, between men and women, between those who are far off and those who are near, between the citizen and the foreigner, and the, in the final analysis between us and God. And so the ground is, is leveled. 
the brush carried off and burned and the foundation is poured and the first block is laid with the name of Christ. The cornerstone. And then the other blocks are laid beside the cornerstone with the names of the apostles and the prophets. And on top of those blocks are laid side by side, sealed together by the mortar of the blood of Christ and the binding of the Holy Spirit. And you know what those, not, those new blocks are named? Those new blocks are named stuff like St. Paul, St. Hannah, St. Augustine, St. Lively, St. Ignatius, St. Jean, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Robin, St. Martin Luther, St. June, St. Martin Luther King Jr., St. Gary, St. Barton Stone, St. Margie, St. Alexander Campbell, St. Marianne, St. Desmond, Saints Cheryl and Susie, millions of other names that I don't even have time to recount for you. But in Christ, Paul says the whole structure is joined together into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you were also built together into a dwelling place for God. I mean, I mean, there it is. That's it. That's it. That's the that's the sermon right there. We ought to just sing the hymn of discipleship and go home. But it's not really that simple, is it? I mean, somewhere deep down inside of us, we know it's true. But we often live as though it weren't. Somehow, I mean, in, in ways that often operate beneath the horizon of our own awareness, we're still in the construction business. The walls have been torn down, and yet we build walls back up again. We've been reconciled to our neighbors, and yet we often refuse to look them in the eye. We've been brought into God's presence, and yet we attempt to remain by our actions far off. Why? Well, why do you think that is? You, you, you remember the movie years ago, uh, Wyatt Earp, right? Kevin Costner. In, in one scene in the movie, <clears throat> Wyatt's brother Morgan is killed by the Clanton gang. And in a rage, Wyatt vows to kill all of them. He and his gang hunt down the Clantons, killing them. And at one point, Wyatt faces one of his brother's killers and with a shotgun in his hand proclaims, this is for my brother. At which point he empties all the ammunition in his small arsenal of weapons into the body of his enemy. Now see, it's pretty gruesome, but we can... We can understand the motivations, right? Blood feud. It, it makes a certain kind of violent, horrific sense. Eye for an eye, all that kind of stuff. And the Bible's full of it. When a person did something to you or your family, you got back at them. I used to live in Appalachia. I mean, we know what feuds are right there. Appalachian history is replete with stories of families who spent countless time and energy 
stalking their enemies. Frederick Breitner writes that, by and large, most of us don't have enemies like that anymore. And then he says something I find really interesting. He says, and in a way, it's a pity. It would be pleasant to think it's because we're more civilized nowadays, but maybe it's only because we're less honest, open, and brave. We tend to avoid fiery outbursts for fear of what that might touch off both in ourselves and in the ones we burst out at. We smolder instead. If people hurt us or cheat us or stand for things we abominate, we're less apt to bear arms against them than to bear grudges. We stand out of their way. And since so many of our attacks are beneath the surface, it may be years before we know fully the damage we've either given or sustained. When we declare war, it's mostly submarine warfare. But if we should ever look them full in the face, then when you see clearly as that who your enemies are, at least you see your enemies clearly too. You see the lines in their faces and the way they walk when they're tired. You see who their husbands and wives are maybe you see where they're vulnerable. You see where they're scared. And seeing what is hateful about them, you may catch a glimpse of where the hatefulness comes from. Seeing the hurt they cause you, you may also see the hurt that they cause themselves. But you see, the thing is, you can't see them from far off. You have to get right up next to people in order to see them. I mean really see them. And by the grace of God and the mystery of Christ, we've been brought near enough, according to Paul, to see them no longer as enemies or aliens or foreigners or strangers, but as human beings, as the children for whom God is creating a whole new world. And it is the one whom I thought was my enemy, the one whom to me was a stranger who is bound with me, walls torn down to be now the very dwelling place of God here on earth. And when I can finally see that, when I can finally see into the eyes of the stranger, when I can see people from close at hand rather than from afar, then I can have hope for my relationship with God. And my hope is no longer in my ability either to make friends or to impress God. It is summed up in the anthem from the Book of the Common Prayer. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my awakening he will raise me up and in my body I shall see God and I myself shall see God who is my friend and not a stranger. Amen.